listening to this week's sermon from King's Community Church. For more information about our church, including meeting time and location, visit kingscommunity.ch. How are we doing? I am uh, affectionately going to be known as, if you're a football fan, I'll be your third string quarterback. Uh, Doug was up first, uh, and then Pastor Wright, and, uh, and I mean, if you're a baseball fan, I'm kind of the closer, right? So different, different roles there. Uh, but few of you may know that uh, years ago, I was in full-time ministry. So when I was at Texas A&M, I had the opportunity uh, to go, and I had asked a buddy to go shadow a youth pastor, and he called me back a few weeks later and said, hey, uh, I don't know about shadowing, but there's a church in the Woodlands that needs a youth pastor. And I was like, no, 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 I, I, I don't want to be the guy. I want to go watch the guy, right? I want to go learn what it's like. And he said, well, you're probably not going to get the job anyway, so just go and interview. This will be a good exercise for you. So I went, and uh, they were really desperate because it was just me and one other dude uh, applying for this misfit youth pastor gig, and I got the job. And uh, so now a whole new host of problems came up because I lived in College Station, and this church was in the Woodlands, and uh, so I took the job, and that launched about four or five years of, of student ministry and a couple of different jobs. One job in particular uh, was in the thriving metropolis of Madisonville, Texas. Uh, that was a step up, I thought, from the Woodlands, right, going back in time to, to Madisonville. And I was, I was kind of the 30-minute teacher, preacher guy. And uh, about two months after getting to Madisonville, the pastor was going out and so on, and I'm the new youth guy. And so they said, well, we, we think you should, you should preach. And so I, uh, I, I jumped up there, and, uh, and I preached. And that morning, I went a little bit long. Uh, and if you've ever preached a little bit long in a Baptist church uh, in central Texas, um, you get some glaring stares from old people. And uh, they've been doing church longer than you've been alive, and they have heard every passage preached a number of different ways, and so they were antsy, and I had people standing up, and this was a big church, four or five hundred people, and, uh, and there were people walking out, and I thought either this is really bad or they're really hungry, and there were two restaurants in town, so you had, you had two choices. And uh, so as, as I'm getting to the end, I started to get frustrated, right, and I'm like, I only get to preach once a year. Maybe you could stay. And so I, I threw out there. I said, I know some of you are getting hungry, uh, but just gnaw on the seats while I finish up. And that was, that was it. Three, three months later, I was asked to resign uh, from that job. That's a true story. And, uh, and so I, I moved back to the Houston area. Uh, but as I was reflecting on closing out this series of being a disciple and studying, and uh, Gabe and I had a chance to talk a little bit about uh, what this was going to look like, uh, I feel like I was unfairly given a task. So Doug, Doug got the, the disciples calling, right? That's a, that's a neatly packaged 20-minute sermon. And then Pastor Wright uh, kind of got the one-on-one relationship of discipleship. That's another solid 20 minutes, 25 minutes. Uh, and then I've got the life of a Christ follower, which is like what we spend our entire lives trying to figure out how to do, right? Uh, and I'm, I'm supposed to pack that into 50 minutes because I get 10 minutes from Doug and 10 minutes from Pastor Wright. So, uh, so we'll, we'll kick off this morning, but let me, uh, let me read something for us, and, uh, and then we'll pray. It says, but when, when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together. One of them, a lawyer, 
asked him a question, testing him in the law. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment? And he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And on these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Let me pray for us. God, we, uh, we thank you for uh, the opportunity to open your word. And um, God, to have access to the maker of the universe. Um, Father, I, I pray uh, over this morning, I pray over this passage, over this series, I pray uh, over Gabe's rest uh, as he gets to take a breather. <clears throat> and God, I, I, I ask that you would teach us in these moments uh, of being uncomfortable and in different roles and serving the church. And God, that you would open our eyes to how, how Jesus made following him simple amongst a laundry list of things that I think we sometimes make this about. And if you're up for it, uh, if you would, just, just pray for yourself that God would clear your mind and uh, block out distraction and give us just a few minutes together. And then if you'd pray for those to the left and to the right of you, that you would just that they would uh, have moments of clarity. And if you would, if you would pray for me, that uh, I would be useful uh, and that uh, my thoughts and words would be his. God, we love you, and um, I pray that you'd teach us in this time. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Uh, so, some of you know that I'm an Aggie, and uh, that means I came up through the Texas A&M ranks. And uh, if you know anything about uh, Aggie culture, there's, there's this called fish camp. And uh, fish camp uh, is like, uh, we'll go with either T-Bar-M or Canacuck or maybe the most kicking youth camp you could imagine except on how to be an Aggie, Right? Um, and so not a whole lot about Jesus, but a whole lot about being an Aggie. And so it's this two-day deal where you get dropped off with like 10,000 other people that you don't know. Uh, and there are crazy nuts upperclassmen that are dressed in costumes and colors and they have bandanas. And they hoist you into a bus uh, and take you several hours away into the wilderness. Uh, it sounds sketchy, I know. And uh, that is where they begin uh, the brainwashing, Right. Uh, and so it's this power-packed two and a half days uh, where you're spending time with nothing but freshmen and sophomores in college. And uh, they walk you through everything there is to know about being an Aggie. And you get on the bus, and from the moment you get on the bus, you start hearing stories about old Ags and about the buildings on campus. And I remember walking onto that bus, and you're kind of like just going with the flow, and and you're an awkward-looking freshman. And back in my day, I was in, like, my new Abercrombie shorts and, uh, and an orange shirt. And if you've ever done anything wrong wearing an orange shirt to fish camp at Texas A&M University, it wasn't, like, burnt orange, but it was very orange. And so, and so I, I kind of was, we'll call it picked on, um, maybe hazed, well, one, of the, one or the other. But it was this moment of, 
of understanding that these people were legit. They were serious about being an Aggie. I wasn't raised in an Aggie home. I didn't really know what it was like to be an Aggie. I hadn't watched anyone walk through being uh, on campus at Texas A&M University. I certainly didn't know anybody at fish camp. Uh, Otherwise, I'd have been curled up in their lap. But it was, this, it was this moment where being an Aggie gets thrust into your face. And so for two days, uh, you're, just, you're, you're constantly learning about the history of the school and, and, and the values and the culture that are on Texas A&M's campus. And I know that Aggies get uh, a lot of uh, jokes. Uh, they get a lot of, uh, we'll go with bad rap, especially in this part of town sometimes. Uh, But there were some really neat things. And I remember uh, amidst all of the different stories and you're learning yells and you're watching uh, all of the Aggie traditions be modeled by these upperclassmen that have committed essentially their entire summers to teaching upcoming Aggies on how to do life as an Aggie. Uh, And so you you come to this realization at the end of it that I I can't know everything that these people know. There's just no way, especially not in two days. And you're, you're being inundated with stories. You get placed in small groups where you get to go around and you talk a little bit about your fears and your hopes and your dreams. And then you have what, what's called namesakes. And these are, uh, we'll call it mentors in Aggiehood, right, that will come in and they will breathe life into these groups. And some of these mentors or namesakes uh, keep in contact with their students for 10, 15, 20 years beyond graduation. And it's this beautiful picture of of. Aggies mentoring or discipling brand new Aggies, right? And in those first two days, what's, what's cool about it is when you get back to campus and they let you off the bus and it's just this cloud of maroon that explodes back on campus, you still don't know it all. You don't have a depth of understanding of what it means to be an Aggie. You have an idea. And it's been modeled for you. And then there's these relationships that have Uh, been formed in these first few days that are supposed to kind of carry you through. It's your people. And uh, I I remember trying to put into words what fish camp is like. And I've I've come into contact with a lot of uh, upcoming freshmen. I know we have at least one in the room. Uh, and it's, it's overwhelming to try to describe, and I think you have a greater appreciation for being an Aggie once you leave. At least I did. But if I had to boil it down, right, I can't tell you everything you're going to learn in those four, for me, five years. But I can tell you that if I had to give you two words from that weekend, it would be that being an Aggie is about integrity and it's about tradition. And I think if you polled the world, even those from the horrible, horrible city of Austin, I think that you would still hear a general consensus of those that may not like the Aggies. But they would say of that place that it is a place that values integrity and tradition. Unlike any place else in the world. It's unmatched. And when I reflect on those two words and I did some some searching uh, just just to find some synonyms. And when you look at integrity... You, you get the phrase moral uprightness. You get the word honesty. And then you hear in your head, if you're an Aggie, that Aggies do not lie, cheat, or steal, or tolerate those that do. Every Aggie learns that as freshman year. And then you hear words under integrity in the dictionary like honor. 
And the first time that you step on, on campus and you get near the grass at the MSC, the student center, and those Corps of Cadets watch you to make sure you don't step on the grass lest they tackle you. You realize that they're not just quirky, but they've held tight to honor. Because for those that don't know, we don't walk on the grass at the student center to honor fallen Aggies. And then there's another word under, under integrity that, that's decency slash good character. And I thought these were really good words. And then I think about my, my freshman first campus, I mean, first, first year on campus, and I, I hopped onto a bus. Uh, I lived on North Side, and most of my classes were on South Side, and AM's rather large, so you don't walk. Uh, and so I hopped on one of the buses, uh, and I was one of the first students on, and so I grabbed my seat, still in my Abercrombie clothes. And uh, the bus started to fill up, and I look around, and I'm the only guy in a seat. And I thought, this is odd, right? And I, I watched as the scene unfolded. And what I, what I watched was that I was, on, I was on the bus with mostly upperclassmen. And that part of their good character was that guys don't sit on buses. They leave the seats for the ladies. Like it or not, it was part of their DNA. And if you've ever stood as a student around silver taps... Or been to an Aggie muster. This word integrity encompasses so much of what it means to be an Aggie. And it's special. And then there's tradition. And you look at tradition and you think of Aggies and all of the silly things that they do. From the yell leaders, not having cheerleaders. To the Aggie band that seems like it's. It's from the days of old. Why can't they get with the times and play new music and wear something different? Or the 12th man story. Everybody knows of the 12th man, but few know that that was a game back in 1921 against Center College that we were supposed to lose. And we got into the game and several players had gotten injured. And we were going to have to forfeit because we didn't have enough players to finish the game. And so a former player was in the press box, and the coach looked up to the press box, and E. King Gill was waved down to the field, and he stood on the sideline so that A&M could beat Center College. And so from that point forward, the 12th man was born, and Aggie stand for the entire football game every year. Tradition, integrity, and I think Similarly, if we look at this passage in Matthew, I think there was a lot to be said about doing life as a Christ follower, as a Christian. There was so much that people were, were trying to communicate, even to the new believer. So much. And you had these pockets of people that would focus on one aspect that maybe they had rallied around. You had some that were so concerned with knowledge. And so they valued knowledge of the scriptures above anything else. And they would place that burden on the new or the baby believer. And if you didn't have the knowledge, you were somehow lesser of. And then you had this other group of people that denied themselves pleasure. 
They were known as the Stoics, and so they felt that being a good Christian, that, would, that, that we wouldn't experience pleasure in this life, that somehow that would make you a better Christian. And then you have these other groups of people who start mingling and arguing in the passage about what it means to truly follow Jesus, because there were 613 laws, many of them negative in in. Uh, in, in consequence, and some that were positive. And to try to grab life and follow 613 laws it was oppressive, right? And so if we look back at this passage, I think what Jesus is trying to do is take the Christian life and say, if we've got to boil it down, it's to love the Lord your God. And what's funny about this passage, and we'll talk about it here in a second, is he wasn't asked for the top two. Right? What's the greatest? And he answers that question, and then he gives them one more. A freebie. And so let's look at that passage. Matthew 22, 34, if you've got your Bibles. And while you're turning there, I'll, uh, I'll give a little bit of background on the passage. So Jesus is, is in is in his ministry, and his popularity uh, has, has begun uh, to, to cause quite a stir, right? Several chapters before, he had walked into the temple and turned over uh, tables and upset one of these groups of people. Uh, he had started healing. He had started teaching, and so you have these these pillars in the faith, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, that are starting to watch as his popularity grows, and they don't like it one bit. One, because they were losing control over the people. Their crowds were dwindling, and Jesus' crowds were growing. And the, what, what really bothered many of these folks is he was shifting the focus, but the challenge was, as he was shifting the focus, when they would try to slip him up, he would quote Mosaic law. And I can imagine in those moments that they would think they were tripping him up only to go, dang it, he's right. And so we have, we have this interaction and right before this segment, uh, the Sadducees come before him. And these, these were kind of the aristocrats of the time, right? Uh, they maintained the temple. They made most of their money off of money changing uh, and selling sacrifices. That was kind of their gig. Uh, and they come to him with some questions. And if you turn a page or two before, uh, I think that much of this arose because he had just come through and kind of shattered their world publicly. Because these were the very people that were selling in the temple. And so they thought, well, let's, let's get together and let's show up and cause him to stumble and show that he's really not teaching truth. Let's expose him. And so if you read the passage before verse 34, he has this interaction. And at the end of that interaction, it's great because it says, <laughs> it says that um, when the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. And it says that the Sadducees no longer had anything to say. And in the original text, it actually says that he muzzled them as he would an ox. And so up comes this second group of people, the Pharisees. And we hear that term a lot, and I think for most of us, we've learned to hate the Pharisees of, of the Bible. 
uh, because they were these oppressive people. They were rule followers, and they would, they would make people feel as though if they couldn't follow the rules, that they had no, no place in Jesus' kingdom. And that much of their motivation was behind the rules, not the heart of what Jesus was about. And so they get together, and they ask, what's the greatest commandment? And they had banded together, and then this one person kind of comes out from the group, and it's, we get the information that he's a lawyer. And I thought, well, why, why would they mention that he was a lawyer? That seems odd. And so uh, some commentary says that they, they kind of gathered together, and they were kind of like, all right, who's our guy? Who's our A plus? Who knows the law? And I, I have to believe that even those in this group are probably a little bit... Te- timid to go up against Jesus publicly. And so I think the lawyer probably was stepping back because we'll read here in a second that when he approaches Jesus, he doesn't do it spitefully. And I think sometimes we've heard this passage and they're like, hey, Jesus, well, what about? And that's not, that's not the connotation because he approaches him and calls him teacher. And so there's an element of respect. And I think, I think this guy was chosen Probably the smart, humble dude that, that maybe was holding back and the Pharisees were looking around thinking, well, who's going to go up against Jesus? And he was probably kind of slipping away and they were like, Billy, he's a lawyer. Can't argue with lawyers. Send him in. And so Billy steps forward and asks you your question. And I also think that when you put yourself in the lawyer's shoes, you have to remember that up to this point, there has not been a successful uh, opposition to Jesus publicly. And so if, if I'm a lawyer and my credibility is on the line and I'm challenging the teacher of the day who happens to be a major celebrity at this point in time in his ministry, I'm jeopardizing my credibility. And so he approaches Jesus and asks the question, what is the greatest commandment? If we had to strip it all away, what's the greatest commandment? And I think that when we see Jesus' answer, we get get a taste of where they're at. He doesn't pause. He doesn't tell a story. He doesn't give an abstract parable. He just answers their question. And what's funny about how he answers the question is that he answers the question with something that a good Jew would have recited twice a day with part of the Shema to love the Lord your God and I think in that moment the Pharisees probably stepped back and went huh using our own stuff against us those very things that we're quoting every day he really means that And I think in that moment, we begin to see that Jesus wants to push away the burden of trying to do it all or focusing on segments of the Christian life. And says, if we've got to boil it on down to two things that are going to undergird how you do life, then let's do this. Let's love God with everything that we are. But let's also love others the way that we love ourselves. And so let's look at 
Look at that part of the passage and figure out why. Why, why those two things? Why, why do we get it in a 1A, 1B kind of format? Why did he take the extra step to include loving others? Why not just answer their question? And so it says, this is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these Two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. And so I think what Jesus is saying here is that there's other stuff, and you'll learn as you move through life. But if we're talking about what this is really, really, really supposed to be about, If you want to know what I've spent my time doing over the last couple of years, it's to love God and to love those around me. And I think we're in a a season of life, right, where there's a lot going on. And I think every generation probably says that. That there's so much, right? There's kids, there's life, there's politics, there's, there's more news now than we've ever had before. And so there is so much Right? And then we dive into church. And, and what did church used to be? They used to hang out, preach, and eat. And now, I don't know about you, but sometimes church can be exhausting. Sometimes the idea of the Christian life, when I try to explain that to somebody else, it's exhausting. There's millions of books written about this aspect of the Christian life or how to do such and such better or what it's really about. Uh, When I was a student pastor, we were uh, a part of a church plant, and I remember going and buying all these books. This is 15, 20 years ago. And uh, and, and when when I looked at that set of titles, it actually is still in my office today, all of them were something along the lines of, Uh, rethinking church, reframing the church, redoing the church, resetting the church, simple church, all of these. For generations and generations, we've tried to encompass what's it really supposed to be about and how do we do that? So once we've defined love God and love others as ourselves, how how do we do that? And so I want to give us a a perspective of of what I think... uh, can give us a glimpse of how, how to do that in everyday life. You see, I think that when we talk about loving God, those of us that are parents, I think that love often begins with just simple obedience. Right? When my kids are young, I'm not ready yet to teach them all of the different things that are, that are going to come to them in life. And I'm really not even ready to teach them necessarily to trust me. I just want them to listen. Right? I want them to obey. We spend the first formative couple of years setting boundaries for our children. Don't go into the street. Show up at this time. Take your plate. Clean your room. Don't talk back. Don't listen to your mother. That's what we do. We set boundaries for kids. Because early in life, what makes a parent feel so incredibly great when that 18-month-old is about to do something that they know is wrong and they do that and they don't do it? We were at some friends' houses uh, last summer 
we were sitting on their uh, their porch, <clears throat> and uh, they've got a rambunctious third child, two year old, and uh, two year old was kind of in between the floor and uh, the bench, and we were out by the pool, and uh, there was a fan, uh, light switch right above that bench, and we were all sitting in the 115 degree heat in Houston, and uh, and I watched the scene kind of play out. We were all just sitting around and, and talking, and. Uh, Baby climbs up and turns off the fan. And uh, mom reaches over, pops his, pops his hand, and says, don't touch the fan switch. And you get the little bark back a little bit. And then he crawls down. A couple of minutes go by, and he crawls back up on the bench. And I'm watching this scene because I'm like, oh, this is good. Because <laughs> then you get to compare, like, my parenting skills, what I would do in this scenario with some of your other friends. And you're like, let's see how this plays out. Climbs up there again, and I swear as I live and breathe, gets up on there, stands up on the bench, looks over at mom. Bloop. And this is strike two, right? Spat the hand, pat the bottom, put back down on the floor. And we go about our business. At this point, baby's frustrated, right? I want to turn the fan switch off. I don't know why, but I want to turn the fan switch off. And so I watch this scene play out only to escalate a couple of other times. And at that point, then it's not fun or funny anymore because then it's awkward because we're watching somebody else discipline their kids while we're supposed to be having fun. We're like, I'm going to go grab a Coke, you know, it's cool. And so uh, I watched and what, what resonated was all she wanted was for the baby to obey. We didn't need to explain why we wanted the fan on. We didn't really need to walk the baby through that concept or trust that we knew that the fan needed to be on. All we wanted was for the baby to obey. And I think for many of us, that is this ultimate sign of love. When a child obeys. And I think for many of us, it's hard to, to grasp that concept of obedience and love because we don't know what obedience really looks like. And the second part of, of obedience moving along the lines of maturity and loving God would then be, would be to trust, right? Because as our kids grow older and they begin making decisions and having relationships and considering what's next after junior high or high school and then they begin navigating life on their own, then as a parent, what do we want? We want them to obey. But more than that, what makes us feel deeply loved is if they trust what we have to say. When a child comes to you and asks your opinion. And we're just now getting to that part where our children are asking questions of us. And you can see their little brains beginning to turn that mommy and daddy have wisdom to share. Mostly mommy. But you begin to see their little brains maturing. And two signs of love as a parent is that my child would obey and trust. And trust is the big one. I think for many of us that have been navigating the Christian life, I think that we lack trust. Francis Chan in his most recent book asks the question that if we, were, we as the church were to look at our lives and ask the question, in what areas of our lives do we truly feel like we are exemplifying trust in the Father? 
if we were really being honest, would any of our lives be centered around trust? Or is it centered around our own ability? Is it centered around our own provision? Is it centered around our stuff and comfort level? Last, uh, I guess it's been about a year, um, Megan and I were, we were in the thick of uh, waiting for adoption. We had uh, done some ministry with, with adoption, foster care, orphan care stuff overseas and linked up with a ministry and that kind of launched us into this evaluating phase of what does this mean for our family and so we, uh, we stepped in effectively the first couple of classes of, uh, of fostering and uh, they effectively weeded us out of that uh, after a few, few sessions uh, and so then we began to pray through what's next. And so we, we got in line and got linked up with an agency in College Station uh, to, to adopt. And so we go through all the classes. You have a home study, and you kind of get put on a waiting list, and it's this indefinite waiting list, right? It could be tomorrow or it could be 10 years from now. And, uh, and so we had walked through that process, and we had gotten a phone call uh, that a mom had chosen us. And... Uh, and so at that point, up to that point, right, it, it's, it's all roses and, uh, and hopes and dreams and this beautiful picture of, of adoption and rescue and restoration. Uh, but when you get that phone call uh, that you may have a child in your, in your home within a couple of days, it becomes real real quick. And I remember in that moment we began wrestling with some of the details of, of us being chosen and immediately, uh, this wide open arms, ready for whatever God would have us, begins to be about, but what about this? And what about that? And how will this affect our kids? And how will this affect our family? And it becomes real. And adoption and foster care is a beautiful, beautiful picture. And the church is called to it. But in that moment... I think the enemy found a way to come between Megan and I. We had very different uh, approaches, and we didn't know that until that moment, until we got that phone call and drove to College Station and met with mom and then came home. And that launched about a month long of the toughest time in our marriage over the last 13 years because we were on different pages. And as we wrestled with that, I was angry. I was angry. Because Megan was in a place where she was not comfortable with the details of what was going on. And all I could see was that we had signed up for adoption. And God tells us to rescue children. And we're believers. And so we're supposed to do this. And so my mind was focused on just this simple obedience. And so we were angry with each other for a solid month. And those that were in our lives navigated it with us. And there was a lot of, of hurt and crying and frustration and wounds that were being opened up. And it was this massive, massive moment where deep down I knew I was right. Until I got on the phone with uh, a counselor friend who works with Chosen. And, uh, and she asked this simple question. She said, Matt. I know that you're hurting, and I know that this has been less than ideal, but how much do you trust God? And I remember wanting to scream through the phone and like, a ton, duh, like that's why we're here. 
And she said, I think you are focused on the way that you planned this to go rather than on how God may have this going. And it was this moment (laughs) where all this time I had thought just simple obedience. Just say yes. It's that easy. But I was lacking in maturity in trusting that God had even moments where I didn't think that it was happening the way it was supposed to happen. And fast forward a year and we have that little dude that's back there and uh, he's biologically ours and we don't know what, what road is to come with adoption or foster care. But I know in that moment that I had a, uh, a flashback of immaturity because I didn't trust God. I trusted my plan and what we'd signed up to do. And on that phone call with that chosen representative, the other question she asked was, you signed up to marry Megan long before you signed up for adoption. So which one matters more? So the second part Loving God, loving others. And I think that we boil this one down uh, sometimes too simply. Uh, and, and this becomes the byproduct of, of maybe what a really good Christian would do. And so um, the loving others as yourself, what Jesus was not doing in this passage was he was not advocating just thinking about yourself. Uh, and commentators throughout are consistent that what he was doing was playing on the understanding that if I hurt I put a Band-Aid on it. That if I'm hungry, I feed myself. That if I'm thirsty, I get a drink. And so I think as he launches into this second part, he thought it important enough to give them the add-on to what it means to follow and be a good Christian. So I tried to break that down. I mean, how do do we do that? We say we're going to love God and we're going to love people everyday life. It's sometimes tough to, to quantify or qualify what that looks like in everyday life. But there's two parts to it that I think are important. One is if we're going to love others as ourselves, then we have to intentionally focus on them. Right? I, every day, intentionally focus on me and my needs. It's just my nature, right? I want to take care of me. I want to move out of the way if there's a car coming. If I'm hungry, I would like to eat. If I'm tired, I would like to sleep. If I'm cold, I want a jacket. And so what Jesus is saying is, if, if we're going to be a man outside of the church, and same thing to those around you, both inside and outside of the church, and what people fail to realize is that in Jesus' ministry, this is what he's been doing. And they're beginning to connect the dots. If I can't walk, and Jesus walks by me and says, you can now walk. He meets a need. It's what this person needed at that moment. When he's standing around teaching and they say, these people are hungry. He's like, well, feed them. In fact, give me some fish and some bread. We'll all feed them. They didn't have to pray about it. They didn't have to think about it. They didn't have to look and check in the budget and see if it was there. They didn't have to rationalize, well, if we give to this group of people, then we won't be able to give to this group. They just fed them. I think that we have to be intentionally focused on other people. 
years ago, I used to ride the MS-150 with, a, with my mentor in the woodlands. And uh, if you've had, anybody ever ride the MS-150, good, it's miserable. Um, but it's this 150-mile bike ride. There's several all over the country, but ours was from Houston car to Austin, okay? Uh, and if you've ever looked at that, that's a long way on a bike. It's a long way in a car. Um, but you might make it faster if you go on a bike. So we would get this group of people, and we would, we would start in the woodlands, and we would take back roads, and we would go all the way to Austin. You spent the night in LaGrange, uh, and you slept on cots and tents, and it was all to raise uh, money, okay, for MS. And I remember one year doing it. Uh, I'm riding alongside out in the countryside, and this year there was about a 20-mile-an-hour headwind uh, from west to east. So our entire ride was into a 20-mile-an-hour headwind. If you've ever been on a bike trying to go fast and you have a headwind, that is the most demotivating place on the planet because you look down and, like, normally you're supposed to go, I don't know, 20, 22 miles an hour, and you're at, like, 9 Okay, and so you're starting to do the math, and you're like nine miles an hour, and I've got to go 150 miles. Like, I'm going to get there on Wednesday. Okay, and so it was this miserable, and it was hot, and it was windy. And I remember we're about 80 miles in, and I'm riding next to, to Philip. And Philip was just this, he still to this day is, in my opinion, the greatest man to ever walk the planet behind Jesus um, because he just loves life and he, he gives to those around him. And we're riding, and at this point, for about the last 20 miles, my bike had developed this click, every pedal stroke. Uh, and then my seat was loose. <laughs> it was a good day. And, uh, and at this point, you're tired, you're hungry, you're frustrated, your, your butt hurts. I mean, there's, there's just nothing fun about this bike ride, especially in a headwind. And I'm complaining, right? I am riding my bike next to Philip, and we're kind of talking about life and what's going on. And uh, there's a lot to talk about in 150 miles on a bike. And I'm complaining, just my seat. And I, golly, Philip, can you look at the back of my pedal and see if it's something with my pedal? And I get off my bike, try to figure it out. Not, not happening. And so, I don't know, an hour of this went on. And finally, out of nowhere, Philip looked over and he goes, Matt, just stop. And I was like, okay, grumpy old man. And he said, I think you've forgotten that we're not doing this bike ride for us. It's not supposed to be fun. He said, we're riding a bike for people that can't ride a bike. We're raising money for people that are sick. For a disease that's wrecked families and lives. He said, the next couple of hours, I'm going to ride by myself. Because I don't want to ride next to you. And I was like, well, dang it. And he was right. I had made that moment about me. And I think when we do that in life, we lose the ability to focus on others and love them well. And the second part of loving others, I think, is just meeting practical needs. I think we've overcomplicated that to analyze and figure out how to do that and how to do it properly and well and do we pray about it. I think that too often we just need to meet people's needs. And much of the New Testament, Jesus storms in with claims that those are the people that are going to be in heaven. James will put it in such a way that faith without action is dead. That even the demons believe who Jesus is. And later in Matthew, there will be this parable of the sheep and the goats. 
And I don't know if anybody's ever sat down and really wrestled with that passage, but it makes some pretty bold claims. Last story, years ago we were at a youth camp. We used to go to a youth camp, and I would teach one of the smaller groups. And uh, this kind of this oracle pastor would travel over from, from Europe, and he would come, and he had actually studied at Oxford, and he was, he was one of the best speakers that I'd ever sat under. And, uh, and he, he was giving a, uh, he, he would do the final camp sermon, and then they would have a Q&A. And this was a leadership camp. And so the questions that would come to, to Aubrey were, I mean, I'm talking like philosophically, they were deep. Uh, but he would take time at the end of camp to answer these questions. They would write them on a card, and he would, he would read them from the stage. And I remember this year, I was standing at the back. Were you there, Megan, at that one? I think you were. Um, we were there, and this, uh, he, he grabs the card, and he looks at it. And the question at a leadership youth camp is, how do I know that I'm really a follower of Jesus? And how do I know that I'll be in heaven? And at first, first hearing that question, I think everybody was kind of like, oh boy, here's the kid that's asking about how do I know for sure that I have salvation? And Aubrey stepped forward and he started to talk about the passage in Matthew 25 where we hear about the sheep and the goats. And it talks about how when you are hungry, or when they were hungry, you fed me. When they were in prison, you visited them. When they were thirsty, you gave them drink. You gave them clothes when they were cold. And at the end of that, there's a very, very clear distinction. That those that did that will have eternal life. And those that didn't will not. And he told that story and referenced the passage. And immediately you heard grumblings. But what about John 3.16? All I have to do is believe. And what about the people that don't ever? And he said, I'm not here to debate. He said, I'm just here to tell you that that's what the Bible says. That if we're going to love God, then naturally we're going to love people. And loving people looks like that. And so if you're not doing that... Aubrey said, then I'd start with the hope of heaven. And if you get to the end of your life and you can look at that passage and truly say, I didn't do that. He said, I'd be worried. He said, I'm not here to create fear. He said, but too often we've taken this love God and love people and made it about lip service. But loving God and loving people does so in action. And when you boil it down, I think that that's what the Christian life is supposed to be about in everyday life. And in the same way that Aggies are undergirded by integrity and tradition, I think that the believer should be undergirded by loving God and loving people. Let's pray. God, we thank you for um, provision. We thank you for your word. We thank you for um, giving us passages to wrestle with. And God, I, I pray that, uh, that conversation would come out of this, that we would begin to question uh, how and where we go, that we would begin to look at uh, how much of our life requires faith and trust and how much of our life looks like obedience. God, I pray that statistics 
of which I have been guilty of, that say that less than 15% of Christians in America open their Bible every day. Less than 15%. God, I pray that we would begin to change statistics like that. Because, God, I think that that's how obedience becomes clearer. And, Father, I pray that as we move in our circles within life, whether that's work or at home or on our street or on sports fields or in school, God, that we would be others-focused and that we would seek to meet needs because many times that's what love looks like. And that's what you've called us to. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you.